Hello, I'm Philip. And I'm Phoebe. Welcome to Dad. And daughter, do you death. Well, hello, Phoebe. Hello, Dad. How are you? <laughs> Ooh, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's been a, a different five or six months. <laughs> yes. Our very brief summer hiatus um, has turned into six Five months, months break. <laughs> six months, yes. So um, to all our regular listeners, apologies for that. But hopefully you've enjoyed listening back to some of our 80 episodes that uh, are out there for you to enjoy. Yes, and we've reposted a couple of our favourites over the last few weeks. Um, so hopefully you've been tuning into those too. And we'd like to say a big hello to any new listeners that have joined us over the last few months particularly as a result of the uh, article that appeared in The Guardian, much to our surprise. Yeah, <laughs> we were not Back expecting August, that. We were not indeed. And um, thank you very much to my old school friend, Caroline, who messaged me to tell me about the article. Um, yeah. yeah, and we know that since then we've had a few people contact us to say how much they enjoy listening to Dad and Daughter Do Death. So, yeah, welcome. And hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. Yes, welcome. Um, it's lovely to have you here. So a couple of things that have happened in that time. I'm kind of tempted to call this podcast Son and Granddaughter Do Death in honour of my mum, Phoebe's granny, who died on the 31st of August. Yeah, she was a listener to our podcast. And avid listener. Yeah, avid listener, yeah. And uh, was always interested in, in this sort of thing. That's probably where we get it from. Betty died uh, in August, and that obviously took some of our time to sort out. And as well as that, I've been involved with directing a play, which of course was a murder mystery. <laughs> nice and on brand. <laughs> Agatha Christie's A Murder Is Announced, which we performed with the new Kimber players. Performed that in November. So now I feel I've got some time back to be able to concentrate on, uh, on this podcast. Yeah, and I've just been very busy uh, with life and <laughs> juggling the two very small children that I have. <laughs> two, and, two kids, um, yeah. <laughs> my uh, business, really, my <laughs> that I that takes up so much of my time, and then juggling shift life, which has been a whole new world for us to get involved in. Uh, most of you will know that my husband has joined the police, which is amazing and he's loving it and it's great. However, shifts are a whole new ball game <laughs> trying to work out the logistics of who's where and who's picking up who and who's doing what overnight and what days he's here and um, not getting much sleep overnight when he's not here for the first few weeks and things like that. But I, I think we're settling into it, but no two weeks are the same. It's no. different all the time. So it's just taken a bit of getting used to and trying to work out which way's up with yeah. it all on top this of everything a, else. It's so. kind of like an eight-day cycle, isn't it? So It's a 16-week it... cycle. So it repeats itself every 16 weeks. Oh, okay. So... <laughs> you mean you haven't got into a routine with that yet? I think he's done <laughs> one set of 16. So um, I think we're getting into the new cycle of 16 now. But each week is eight days, isn't it? So, yeah, uh, so, so on, it moves. It moves on a day each week. So yeah. <laughs> you never know when he's going to be around or... <laughs> If it's nights or days or, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so as you can see, we've had some challenges between us. Yes, yes. But I think it's, 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 I'm glad that we've managed to forge some time in our busy, yes. hectic 
schedules pre-Christmas to sit down and do this. It's nice to have this time together, isn't it? To it spend is. some time I've with each other. Yeah. 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 And also it's good fun. So in honour of our Christmas special, I'll be telling you the story tonight of a murder that took place at Christmas, which sort of makes it Christmassy. I mean, there's it wasn't done by Santa or there was no kind of normal strangled with Christmas lights or anything like that. But it the elves. <laughs> wasn't the elves. But it did happen at Christmas, so it's um, relatively festive. So the story is set in Wales. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try my best with the place names, but um, I'm going to apologise now for any Welsh listeners or Welsh-speaking listeners um, for the the place names that I'm undoubtedly going to murder. So this is the story of Gwen Ellen Jones. So Gwen Ellen Jones was born in Blenau Festiniog in 1874. And she was the daughter of a slate miner called John Parry and his wife, Jane. They had another daughter who was also called Gwen, who was age 10 when she actually died. And then they went on to have Gwen Ellen a few months after she had died. um, And they named her after her deceased older sister. So... Big shoes to fill. She had two younger siblings, Thomas and Jane, um, who were born in 1879 and 1886. In the 1890s, Gwen's mother died and their family moved to Lanfair, Fekan, where Gwen's father found work as a labourer in a stone quarry. In 1898, 23-year-old Gwen married 43-year-old local man, Morris Jones, who was also a labourer in the stone quarry with her father. By 1901... They were living at Four Tanny Bonk at the top of Lanfairfican and her father, um, who wasn't in the best of health, and her younger sister moved in with them. Oh, okay. So just remind me, when when was she born? She was born in 1874. Okay, so she's like 26, 27, something like that now. Yeah. Yeah. So around the same sort of time, Gwen had also adopted a two-year-old little girl called Gladys Jones, who report said was born um, in a workhouse and had been abandoned by her mother. Obviously, taking her on was a further drain on the family's very limited resources that they had at that point. But Gwen did so nonetheless, and all of her life, Gladys looked up to Gwen as her mother. Gwen was clearly at the centre of her family, and they very much depended on her for keeping things going, even though her husband was obviously the breadwinner. Gwen took on two lodgers to make ends meet, which meant that the living conditions at the house would have been very cramped and unpleasant. The house had just three rooms, a kitchen and two bedrooms, and these now had to accommodate seven people, mostly adults. So alongside all of this, Gwen took in washing for people as yeah. another way to kind of make some money. So in 1902, William Murphy started bringing his washing to her. He was a big, strong man who'd spent many years in the military, first with the East Lancashire Regiment, where he served in India and South Africa, and then as a second corporal in the Royal Anglesey Royal Engineers. He was a man who both who people liked, but also feared. He was quite intimidating. Reports said that he had a sense of humour and fun and was even allowed himself to be tied up with ropes on the occasion of the May Day sports in the town, because he grew up there as well. At the okay. same time, his kind of intimidating stature meant that no man wanted to cross him. 
Whilst he was in the Royal Anglesey Royal Engineers, he was described as a most fearless man, and he single-handedly overpowered a violent drunk brandishing a bayonet who was quite helpless in his grasp. The fact that he carried a piece of soap and a mirror with him at all times suggests that he took care of his appearance, and he might have come across as a bit of a swashbuckler to Gwen with his military background and overseas service. So it's impossible to know whether Gwen and Morris Jones, her husband's relationship, was a happy one, but they'd been married for four years and in that time there had been no children. So whether that was because they couldn't have children or whether that was because neither of them were particularly inclined to have children with each other, that's where they were in their relationship. Right. However, in 1902, when William Murphy started taking his washing to Gwen, they very quickly embarked on an affair. And Gwen uh. actually gave birth to a son on the 19th of January 1903, which was most likely William Murphy's child. Um, she named him William John, after her lover and her father. Um, <laughs> we don't know how her husband reacted, but... It took a long time for his birth to be registered, which could be evidence of the knowledge that he wasn't his son um, and his reluctance to put his name on the birth certificate, which he did eventually do. Okay. But the fact that it took such a long time for them to register the birth suggests that maybe there was some sort of hesitation there on his part because he was he knew that he wasn't his son. Yeah, so Morris actually registered it. Yeah. Registered the birth. Yeah? Yes, yeah. So William Murphy was quite a jealous and possessive man and had no doubt been urging Gwen to leave her husband for him. Naturally, the situation couldn't continue and Gwen did leave Morris on several occasions to be with William Murphy. So she'd like leave him and then go back to him and leave and go back to him. And clearly it would have been quite difficult for her father to stay in the marital home while all this was going on. So he moved out to, to, to live somewhere else. Her actions would have been considered so shocking at this point, bear in mind that it's, you know, 1903, 1904. Yeah. Um, and she was having this affair with, you know, it's kind of open secret that she'd had a child with this man and was sort of in and out with her husband and this other guy. And it's fair to say that a lot of neighbours and friends would have kind of disowned her and sort of kind of cut themselves off from her to make sure that she didn't, they didn't, they weren't involved in the scandal. Finding other work for her would have been difficult because everyone knew about what had happened, but she mm -hmm. did have two children to support. In addition, her brother had moved to South Wales, meaning that she had no real male protector apart from her father, but obviously he was quite poorly and he was no real match for, for William Murphy. This left her in quite a perilous situation and now she was really quite reliant on William Murphy for financial support and things began to go from bad to worse for Gwen. So to avoid taking the scandal to her father's new home, she rented a room on the top floor in a common lodging house um, in Hollyhead, in a very poor area of the town. She stayed there with William Murphy, but he was away working a lot. Um, mm -hmm. because obviously, he was still in the, the army. And whenever he, he was away, she'd go back to her father's home and stay with him. Since 1908, William Murphy had been in the Royal Anglesey Royal Engineers Special Reserve, which gave him occasional employment. And the rest of the time, he obtained labouring jobs where, he'd, where he would work on railway lines um, and with water companies. And he travelled all over. He was in Cornwall. He was in Yorkshire. So doing a lot of travelling from Wales for work. A lot of the time, they had to live from hand to mouth and they were often reduced to begging. And Murphy had started to become quite violent towards her. Her father testified that Murphy had beaten her black and blue 
while both Gwen and Morris had told him that Murphy had once cut her shoes off with a knife and had also threatened her with a knife and kicked her several times. Oh, gosh. So in the testament to Gwen's courage, she had tried to leave him several times and she yeah. took the opportunity to do this while he was away working in Yorkshire in 1909. Murphy claimed that he was sending money to Gwen, but she still needed to make her own money to make her independent of him. Right. And we're not, we can't be sh- certain about this, but we're quite sure that this led her into prostitution. The North Wales Express blatantly referred to her as a prostitute, where other newspapers were kind of saying that she was a beggar, she was Murphy's paramour, a member of the hawker class. And there were other women that she was known to kind of associate with who'd been convicting, who'd been convicted of soliciting. And it was suggested that yeah, she was kind of engaging in prostitution to generate some income for her children, basically. Right. So about six weeks before Christmas, while Murphy was away on one of his work trips, Gwen left her dad's house to go back to Hollyhead and where she took up with another man called Robert Jones. And according to Robert Jones, they lived together as man and wife. Now, I'm not sure how she managed to do this so quickly because if it was only away for such a short period of time... She met this guy. They all the family moved in with him. But anyway, apparently their relationship seemed to be one of of convenience, and he showed very little affection for her. Um, oh. And a week or two before Christmas, William Murphy came back from work and arrived at John Parry's house, so Gwen's dad's house, looking for Gwen because he just assumed that that's where she would be because that's where she was when he was away. However, they said that she wasn't there. And then he told Gwen's father and Gladys that if he saw her with any other man, he would kill her. Gwen's father lied and Murphy said that she'd gone to Beaumaris with Morris, specifically to deter Murphy from following her. But it was inevitable that he would go back to Hollyhead. And he went and he took up new lodgings in 40 Baker Street, so just a few doors down from where she was living. Then quite a bizarre thing happened when William Murphy was invited to join Robert Jones and Gwen for breakfast one morning with Jones appearing to think nothing of it and despite them living together Gwen once again found herself begging and had sort of was sort of between William Murphy and Bob Jones it seems for a couple of weeks and Murphy was kind of treating her like he'd gone back to her and was still being violent to her. Sounds like a very complicated arrangement. It does sound like a very complicated uh, love triangle, doesn't it? Or and love hard work. pentagon. On, <laughs> yeah, very hard work. <laughs> so on Wednesday the 22nd of December, an eyewitness said that it, he appeared to have given her a thrashing. So I'm assuming that means Murphy had appeared to give her a thrashing. Right. And he had told uh, someone in the pub that I will do for her if I can't get her away from that old man. On the night of the 25th of December, 1909, Christmas Day, Christmas Day. <laughs> William Murphy arranged to meet Gwen at the bottom end of Wynne Street near a stile. But Gwen decided to go to the pub instead with her friend, who was also maybe a prostitute. Then they went to a different pub where they met William Murphy outside. He asked Gwen if she would go for a walk with him and she agreed. Hmm. It was about half past eight and they walked up Newry Street in the direction of Captain Edward B. Tanner's house and it was stated that they were singing. This was the last time that anyone saw Gwen alive. 
So it was Christmas mm. night. Christmas night. But obviously had a lot of turkey and Gwen had been drinking. So her judgment and reactions were impaired, making her even more vulnerable. And as they walked in the darkness, there was a steady drizzle of rain which soaked their clothes. Gwen was walking first up the street and then over a field, was stumbling against Murphy and in her drunkenness told him that she liked him and no doubt remembering their early courtship. She was dressed in a hat and like a feather boa and then quite sort of traditional clothing for a woman in 1909, kind of a shirt, a bit of a jacket, skirt. As their walk went on, Murphy had said to her, why didn't you take the boa off? And she explained that it was hooked underneath. And so he moved his hands to her neck, but instead of releasing the boa, he gripped her throat with his left hand and pushed her to the ground. Gwen fought back and she screamed and struggled, but William Murphy stated that we had a good hard fight and she was nearly as strong as me and she scratched his face quite badly. But inevitably she was no match for him as he knelt over her, crushing her neck with his left hand and steadying himself with his right, only seizing after she grew weaker and weaker and gave her last kick. After this, his brutal treatment of her body increased and the horror of what he had done And we can only hope that she was dead when he did this to her, but you can't be 100%. So he took out a knife and he started cutting her throat, putting her head across his leg to do so. So I think kind of like using his leg like a bench, I guess. Yeah. As she was gurgling, he believed that she was still alive. And then he dragged and pushed her body into a nearby ditch where he continued to cut her throat across five inches, severing everything but the spinal cord. So almost decapitating her before pulling the wound wide apart with his hands to a width of about three inches. So pretty gruesome. Pretty gruesome, yeah. He then turned her face downwards and shoved her underneath the water to smother and drown her in this ditch. And once his final attack was over, he attempted to drag her body out of the ditch, but she was too heavy because her clothes had been soaked from the rain and the water in the ditch. And so he tried to drag her out by her hair, um, but again, he he failed to do so, and so he just let her blood-soaked, mutilated body roll back into the ditch. When mm. they found the body, the police described it as lying on its back, the clothing around the neck and shoulders covered in blood, with a ghastly wound on the neck, and one hand covering the throat as if she tried to protect it. Which I guess she kind of must have just fallen into that position after she yeah, died. Yeah, I would have thought so. She wouldn't have been alive for very long. I don't no, think I don't think so. The, those sort of injuries. No. Gosh. Following the murder... William Murphy planned to flee and sold his coat and some food to raise the money to do so. However, after returning back to Gwen's house, he decided to give himself up. When he got there, her neighbours had said had asked him where she was and he replied, you've seen her for the last time. Gwen's son was also there, and his son, <laughs> um, William, and he was crying for his mother. But William told him that he had no mother anymore and gave him some money before telling the neighbour to give him some bread. And then he showed the neighbour the body of Gwen and then oh. took himself to the police station where he gave himself up. Okay. How old, how old was young William John by this day? Seven. He's seven, right, okay. Seven. So when the police found her body, they found some letters that she had in her pocket which gave the address of her father. Yeah. And so they sent a telegram to tell him what had happened. And then he travelled to Hollyhead to identify the body. The horrific events of that night were reported in newspapers across the country, but she was quietly laid to rest in an unmarked pauper's grave 
in the mortuary cemetery in Holyhead on the 29th of December. So quite quickly after she died. Yeah. It's not clear who or if anyone attended her funeral, whether her family was kind of well enough to get there or they could get there, or if it was just people visiting over the Christmas holidays. So because William Murphy had handed himself in, he was charged with murder. And he appeared before the justices at Holyhead in late January 1910. So again, just a few weeks later, as we're used to seeing in these sorts of things. His barrister, Austin Jones, had very little with which to defend him. And at the trial, even Gladys Jones, her 11-year-old stepdaughter, well, her adopted daughter, was forced to give evidence. I'm not sure what for, though. Maybe like a character witness thing or explaining the relationship between her and Murphy. I'm not sure. But obviously it would have been a very traumatic experience for Gladys and Gwen's father, John. Yeah. Murphy's defence argued that he never really had any intention of doing harm to the woman, but was possessed by some impulsive mania and unable to control his actions. However, his actions and statements prior to the night suggested that the murder was probably premeditated. On the train to Cairnafon Gal, about a mile and a half out of Holyhead, he pointed to a farm and told his police escort that he'd initially intended to kill Gwen there on the Thursday the 23rd while they were out begging together. But as William junior was with them he decided against it because he didn't want the child to see it he carried a knife and a cord around with him and in conversation with men from baker street was alleged to have said that he would do for gwen jones and that she would not live to eat her christmas dinner oh after the murder he was reported as saying i'm not sorry for it i'm glad i've done it i shall get a bit of rest now oh gosh so (laughs) not particularly anyway no exactly (laughs) According to the policeman at Holyhead, who came into contact with him at the time of the murder, he gloried not in the fact that he'd murdered her, but that he had prevented her from bestowing her affection on any other man but himself. Mm. The court was satisfied that the knife which slit Gwen's throat was the one which Murphy used to eat. Neither was there any evidence that he was of unsound mind, even though they tried to kind of push this idea that he'd been sort of turned insane the jury took only three minutes to reach a verdict of guilty three minutes (laughs) and the judge passed sentence of death he was hanged by famous executioner pierre point and he was the last condemned man to be so killed at carnarfon prison and obviously those who were executed at its hanging tower were buried within the walls of the prison and his grave is said to have been marked by a simple gravestone with just his initials the date of his execution and directions to the grave. The gravestone was excavated during the 1930s when the building was closed, and now it is part of offices as part of their kind of council headquarters. (laughs) What a place to have your offices. And his gravestone can be seen in... The, at the offices, they've got kind of like a artefacts place, so you can see his... Why don't his body? um, I have no idea. Maybe they left it there. Um, They probably put it somewhere else, but I guess... But on top of it, yeah, I guess they probably moved it to a different unmarked grave, maybe, if he was in the prison when he died. So Gwen's children were now left in quite a precarious situation. Her father disappears from history after the trial. There's no more mention of him ever again in any sort of records. It's likely that he died relatively soon after she did. John Um, John Perry. John Perry. Her brother appears to have made no attempt to take the children into his home. And the press appeared not to make any mention of him in in their work, even though some letters do know do reveal that he knew that his sister had died. 
but they maybe suggest that he didn't want anything to do with it and so just kind of kept his distance. Mm-hmm. Gladys was eventually taken into care by the Bangor and Bomaris Union and placed in a home while William was taken into the care of Dr. Bernardo's. He was oh, taken okay. away from the home in 1910, in April 1910, so just a few months later, by a man who used him for begging purposes. But fortunately, someone found them and he was taken back into care. And it is quite significant that Morris Jones, her husband, Original remained husband, a silent yeah. figure in all of this. Mm. Um, he didn't appear at the trial, he didn't give any statements, and he didn't come forward to take care of William, which is something that would have been expected if the child had been his. So I think yeah. he kind of saw this as the opportunity to say, well, actually, he's not he's not my son, and walk away from from him. Which is yeah. sad, because he'd still brought him up. Um, in April... He had, hadn't he? Yeah, to a yeah. certain extent. It still brought him up for quite a long time, so it's sad that he hadn't... Or And Gladys, he'd adopted Gladys yeah. with Gwen, so it's sad that he didn't want to be involved with yeah. her life either. So, so um, they both that, got split up, really. They One both got went, split up. Yeah. In that same April, a lady from Bolton offered to adopt Gladys, so quite a long way, really. And the local board of guardians accepted without getting the agreement of her mother who was still alive, <laughs> her actual mother was still alive in the workhouse because Gladys had been born to the, oh, in the workhouse. Yeah, yeah. Her actual mother was still alive and they didn't actually get her permission. They just sent her away because it was quite quick and easy to do. Gladys's so, biological mother, yeah, yeah, who'd originally given her up for adoption. Yeah, so they didn't even send Morris. her back to her wow. kind of okay. biological mother. We don't know whether William and Gladys ever saw each other ever again. But with Gwen's death in 1909, the precarious little family unit that had survived and was being sort of held together by her very much fell apart. Yeah. And it has been 114 years on Christmas Day since she was murdered. And I think that people who know her story and who who tell her story are keen for her to be remembered as her own person and for the fact that, you know, she did make some mistakes, but she also showed real resilience and kindness. She adopted someone out of a workhouse when she was 23. And that's how she should be remembered and not as a woman of the hawker class who was murdered by William Murphy in a really gruesome way on Christmas night in 1909. Mm. Certainly was gruesome, wasn't it? Really gruesome complicated setup she uh, she yes. had i mean morris was quite a bit older than her yeah 20 years older than with. her to so, start uh, yeah in those days that would have been a huge well any time i suppose but 20 years is a big gap yeah yeah huge very big gap but yeah it sounds like she had kind of had a rough start from a rough time from the start and yeah had sort of been on a rupp as always, and then it eventually led to her death. It did. You know, very, as you say, gruesome way. Yeah. Yeah, very gruesome way. Are there any uh, any photographs of any of these characters? There are some photos, yes. There's photos of Gwen. There's photos oh, of wow. William. There's some photos of kind of the courtroom that okay. he was tried in oh, very um, quickly <laughs> very very quickly um so yeah there are some photos i will share them on our social media pages i'll share them on instagram at dad and daughter do death and i'll share them on facebook dad and daughter do death and you can always get in touch with us on 
Facebook, on Instagram, or you can email us at dad and daughter do death at gmail.com. Thank you so much to everyone who has reached out and got in touch with us over the last few weeks. Um, yes, thank it's you. really <laughs> lovely to hear from you and to hear what you think of the podcast and that you're enjoying listening. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thank you for taking the time to, to get in touch with us. And if you'd like us to uh, to mention you as being one of our listeners, just drop us a line and, and give us your name and we'll we'll give you a shout out in one of our future podcasts. And yeah, please do keep suggestions coming as to stories that you might like to hear, yeah. books that you think we might like to read. Yes, um, indeed. We're always <laughs> interested to hear new ideas. Yeah. I mean, this story tonight, Phoebe, I'd never heard of it before. So thank you no, very yeah. much for, for sharing that with me. It happened at Christmas, so... It is. Yeah, it felt a little bit festive. So on that note, Merry Christmas 2023 and join us next time when once again, Dad... And daughter, do you death. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas!